Tonight, we come to Mark chapter 7 in our uh, series through Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And if you'd like to, feel free to either follow along in your worship folder, you can, you can just listen. Mark chapter 7, I'll begin at verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. But the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to, to the tradition of the elders? But eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So as I said, we are continuing to uh, look at the life of Jesus through Mark's gospel, and tonight we come to a a rather different passage uh, in, in tone and even theme than we have been looking at in the past several weeks. The last several weeks... We have been working our way through a cycle of miracles in Jesus' ministry that began back in chapter 4. But this week, we are reintroduced to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're from Jerusalem. And the last time we we learned of them or saw them was back in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the religious leaders, the last time we we heard of them, uh, called Jesus... Uh, they said he was demon-possessed, and they were plotting his demise. <laughs> so when they reappear again, we're probably not, we are not intended to, to see this as a peaceful meeting. But the conflict and disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees is continuing. And in fact, perhaps as clearly as anywhere else in Mark's gospel, this passage served to illustrate the very heart of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And the issue that we face in this passage is the role of God's Word in the life of Jesus' followers. It's a passage that, as, as even just in having read it, you probably heard. There is a profound conflict for Jesus between the tradition of the elders and God's Word. And they... There is an antithesis, 
And it raises a question about God's word for us. And it's this, is it sufficient or is it in some way deficient and in need of our wisdom and help? That's essentially the issue that he faces here. And the issue comes to Jesus in the form of a question in verse 5. In verse 5, the elders have already observed back in verse 2, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with what they called hands that were defiled. They didn't wash them. And so they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And the word here translated walk, it's a pretty common word in, in, in the Bible, but sometimes it carries a more technical sense. And this is one of those places. In fact, it's the only place in all four of the Gospels where commentators see in it this more technical, narrow meaning, which is to say that it, it has the, the, the meaning of to live by or to pattern your life after. And so for Jesus, the very question itself strikes the foundation of what it means to have a relationship with God. Are we to pattern our lives after His Word and His promises or after man's Word? However well-intended it may be, however ancient it may sound, there is a conflict. And as we're going to see, for Jesus, the only way to relate to God is on the basis of what He has said. Not what we say. However religious and trained and wise it may seem. And therefore the point of this passage is this. That according to Jesus, human religious tradition undermines the power and comfort of God's word in your life. It's incompatible. It's antithetical to it. And it will rob you of the joy and comfort that he has has for you in his word. And so I want to try to show you why this is the case by highlighting uh, three things from this passage. I want to look at with you at the plausibility of religious tradition that we see here. Why is it plausible? And then the progression of religious tradition. And then lastly, we're going to look at the undoing of the religious tradition that we see here. So first, let's look at the plausibility of it. The concern here raised by the the religious leaders, it comes out of uh, oral tradition that is uh, at least, goes back at least to the second century B.C. It's an old tradition alongside of the written law of Moses, uh, especially dealing with Ritual washings. What does it mean to be pure as an Israelite, as a Jewish person in relationship with God? And the, the religious leaders here are bringing up these, these purity laws. And it's important to, to, to notice that this, this oral tradition, uh, it's actually, you can see much of it, you can still read much of it now. Uh, it's written down. Uh, We have copies of it. But what it sought to do was it sought to examine and regulate virtually every aspect of personal and corporate life. Which resulted in this, a vast 
legal complex of rules and regulations. And it was intended to be binding on, on everybody, every Israelite. But I want you to notice, or at least point out for us, that we need to appreciate here when the religious leaders come to Jesus and they uh, point out what his disciples are doing and ask this question, it's not hard to sort of uh, villainize the religious leaders in the Gospels. But I want you to see, why might this have been plausible? Why might it have sounded like a good idea? And the reason is that at the very heart of it, the motivation for this oral tradition was intended to show how devoted God's people were, how serious they were and committed they were to following his law. And in fact, we could even go so far as to say the oral tradition really was an effort to try to respond to God's command at the very heart of the Old Testament, that you shall be holy, for I am holy. That there, if we could give them the benefit of the doubt for the moment, that the plausibility of it, the intention behind it was to actually try to respond, to live as God has called them to live. And therefore, the oral tradition, the religious traditions here, the traditions of the elders were meant to serve, they were meant to be like a fence to safeguard the people of God. They acted like a fence around God's law so that it worked like this. If you didn't, if you followed the the oral traditions of the elders, the religious leaders, and you were successful at that, well, then you would definitely not break God's law. And so what happened is all of these uh, extra rules and regulations, especially where God's word was silent, entered in as a way to guard and protect God's people, to keep them in fellowship with them. And at first, I think this sounds kind of plausible. Uh, we, have a, we have a little children's book at home that talks about this very idea and uses the illustration of, you know, if, if you have to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning... Well, if you set your clock to 7.55, if you don't hit the snooze button, you'll be up at 8. So it's a fence. It helps you to make sure that you get up on time and not oversleep. It sounds like a good idea, but there are at least two very serious problems that we meet with right away, just even by reflecting on this, that here, when the, when the religious leaders come to Jesus... What's the very first thing they point to? They point to the performance of the disciples. And this is one of the ways that the traditions of the elders always works. And in fact, I would say this is how all religious tradition works. It always puts the focus on your performance. And distracts you from Resting in God's performance. It always puts the focus on your performance as the crucial element in your relationship with God. But the second one is, perhaps even just as significant if not more so, that the traditions of the elders 
religious tradition that attempts to lead you and guide you into a deeper, richer, more vibrant relationship, obedient relationship with God, inevitably what it does is it turns holiness into an achievement. When according to the Bible, holiness cannot be achieved. It is a gift. Holiness in the Bible always begins as a gift. That God works out in your life. It simply isn't something that any amount of tradition or rules or regulations or even any amount of sincere discipline can achieve all by itself. Holiness, which is another way of saying what you were made to be, comes as a gift through faith in Jesus, being united to him in fellowship with him. And so for Jesus, when he encounters the religious leaders and their traditions, he sees in that that it strikes at the very heart of what he has come to do and what he has come to give us. And so here is, there's a profound irony that the very tradition that was intended to uphold and honor God's word, in the end, it undermines it. That's the thrust of the entire passage. And so I want you to show you how does this happen. And that gets us to the progression of how religious tradition works itself out. How this tradition of the elders, or as Jesus calls it, the tradition of men, or even in a more uh, indicting way, in verse 9, he says, your tradition. See, Jesus describes the progression of how religious tradition subverts God's word, and he does so, he uses two groups of three words. I want to show you how he does this. Look in verse 8. In verse 8, we see that Jesus, he says to them, you leave the commandment of God. That's the first step. It's leaving God's word. Or another way to think of this would be to neglect it. That leaving or neglecting, relatively being passive towards it, walking away from it, gives way to, in verse 9, when Jesus then says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. So it's now not just neglecting it, not giving it its due and its attention, that gives way to now rejecting God's word, actually rebelling against it, which then gives way in verse 13 to making it void, to nullifying it to essentially depriving it of any say or authority in your life at all, to the point where it has absolutely no effect. You become numb to it. It has no bearing, no direction, no hope, no life at all. So that's the first group of three words of how this progression unfolds. The second group of three words are in many ways are the positive side of this. It's the it's the other side of the coin of how the tradition of the elders here, according to Jesus, plays itself out. And he says it begins with in verse actually in verses three, verse four, and verse eight. 
we see, look at verse 8 with me where he says, you, you leave the commandment of God, but, and so what do they do? You hold to the tradition. There's, this is the idea of holding fast, of being closely united to it, clinging to it. That now, no longer is God's word the very lifeblood of your life, but it is the words of men. It's human traditions become the things that we cling to and hold fast to and pattern our lives after, which then gives way to not just holding fast to it, but in verse 9, to establishing it, to setting it up, to actually considering it valid, that it is now something that I cling to, but it is permanent. It's fixed. It's immovable. Which then gives way to verse 13. Not only just does, do the, does the, the traditions make it void, now they're handed down. The idea here is that they hold fast to it, they cling closely to it, they're united to it, it's then set up, it's permanent, it's established. And the traditions now become what are passed on and passed down as God's word. But it is, in fact, only man's word. It's a devastating progression of movement away from God's revelation of himself. And Jesus here in verses 6 to 7 tells us where this ends up. In, in saying to the, to the religious leaders, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now that's a, pretty, that's a pretty accusatory word. Even for us today, no one likes to be called a hypocrite. And in the ancient world, during the days and time of Jesus, this is a word that came right out of the, the world of, of drama and acting. In fact, the word hypocrite was, was the word for an actor. Someone who acted a part in a play. And the idea here is that when you're acting in a play, you're actually not yourself. You, you adopt another name. You adopt a whole other personality and role and um, antics and sometimes accent. You're pretending. You, in fact, become a whole other kind of person. And Jesus' point here, in effect, is to say that the result of this progression is religious hypocrisy, where we begin to pretend to be something that we're not. And to further deepen his point, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13, there in verse 6 and 7, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So the pretending that's going on is this posture and habit of saying one thing, acting in one way, but yet the heart is hard towards God, is far from Him, is far more concerned with our religious performance than with real heart change. 
Real communion with God and love for God. And the point here is simply this, that according to Jesus, religious tradition doesn't bring you closer to God, which is the whole intention of this passage for the religious leaders. It leads you further away. That's what Jesus wants us to see. Now, why is that? Because what God says has been replaced with what man says, and that's at the very essence of idolatry. So that Jesus says, in vain do you worship me. It's false worship. Rooted in the words of men rather than the words of God. And in order to drive the point home, in verses 9 through 13, he gives an example of how this plays out. And he quotes from the fifth commandment. He reminds the religious leaders that here's what Moses said. He said, honor your father and your mother. And then he quotes elsewhere from in Exodus when he says, just after that, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. He quotes that in order to stress the, the seriousness of God's word, of his command to honor father and mother. But then he, he, he goes on and says, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever would have, you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. What, what is Jesus talking about here? He, he here draws out and draws attention to uh, what was called a, a korban tradition. Now that word korban, all that means is it's an it's, it's a Old Testament priestly word that uh, describes an offering made to God. An offering made to God. And the, the closest concept that I think helps convey what's happening here, he's describing, is what we might call today, t- today deferred giving. So what you could do is, if you had assets, or you had land, or you had uh, money, you could offer it to God. And when you died, it would be, it would pass into the possession of the temple and be used to serve God's people or help the poor or however it would get used. But what would happen is you would make this promise or this vow even while you're still alive. And you still had control of those assets or those goods. And you could do with it what you wanted, but when you died, what, whatever was left went to uh, the temple. And what Jesus is critiquing here and criticizing is this practice was used to keep people from actually honoring their father and mother when they were in need. And Jesus says, do not let your well-intended, zealous, religious practice keep you from following the clear commands of my word. He points out this illustration in order to tell us this, that religious tradition inevitably, however well-intended it may be, always undermines God's word. Now, I have to be honest with you. That's a hard thing to tell you. It's very black and white. But there's simply no way to read this passage and not 
have to hear Jesus teaching here. He, time and again, verse 8 again, is where he's most succinct. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. They're incompatible. And Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room. He says, life is found in my word and my word alone. My word's sufficient for you. Everything that you need to know about my grace and the salvation that I bring is available to you in the word I'm giving you. Now through the plausibility and the progression of the tradition of the elders here, as Jesus presents it to us, Jesus teaches us the absolute importance of listening to him and him alone. Now, how, though, does Jesus undo this problem for us? How does Jesus wean us off of this propensity to add things to God's word? Even really plausible things that maybe really take root emotionally in our lives or seem like a really wise way to live but yet find no evidence in the scriptures anywhere. How does he wean us off of that? I want to show you how he does this. How does he undo it? Well, listen for a moment. While it's not explicit in this story, the very storyline of Mark, though, creates a tension, a great tension, between the traditions of the elders and Jesus especially around this matter of ritual purity, of the purity laws. Think with me for a moment. If you've been here in previous weeks, let me just rehearse for you. What have we seen? We have seen Jesus cleanse a leper. You can't get much more unclean as an Israelite than to have leprosy. We've seen Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners. The very people that religious leaders would not sit down and eat with. We saw Jesus ministering to Gentiles. We've seen Jesus heal a woman of irregular bleeding. We've seen Jesus touch a corpse. What's Mark doing? Enlisting all of those stories and then inserting this encounter with the religious leaders. Here's the point. At this point in the gospel, Mark is trying to communicate and Jesus is teaching us that the traditions of the elders sought to do what only Jesus can do, but can't. You see, here what we have is Jesus undoes the religious traditions of the elders by coming to do what they simply cannot do. Only Jesus can touch a leper and heal him and not contract the disease. Only Jesus can touch a corpse and make it live. Only Jesus had the humility and the compassion and the courage to sit down with the people who no one wanted to dinner with. 
Only Jesus is able to deal with the real impurity, the real uncleanness of our hearts, of our lives. You see, the hand washing, frankly, that's all a pretense. It doesn't clean the heart. Jesus alone is able to come and to cleanse us from the inside out. See, he came to take upon himself all our impurity, all our sin, in order to give us his holiness, his purity. And the great danger, this is the great danger, even for us, is that we would fall into the trap of thinking that we can somehow clean ourselves up by our religious zeal, by our traditions, however well-intended or ancient they may be. See, Jesus came to cleanse, to remove guilt and shame. Jesus came not only to pardon, but also to be our worthiness. He came to make you beautiful. And really, the the first steps of grasping the gospel is realizing that you cannot do that. That left to ourselves, we are a big bag of filthy rags. And this is why we need to heed this passage. That to reject God's word in exchange for religious tradition is to reject Jesus. In exchange for our own self-salvation strategies. I really think it's that strong. The way Jesus teaches us in this passage. Now why is that the case? Because this is the reason why. Because God's word is all about Jesus. And religious tradition in one way or another is really all about us. And Jesus wants you to step into his word. To know him. To be connected to him. And so what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? I think, first of all, we have to use it like a diagnostic tool. Jesus only gives us one example here uh, in verses 9 through 13. But notice at the very end, he says, And many such things you do. One of the ways that I think we need to use this passage as a diagnostic tool is, are we open to the many such things that we do? And perhaps aren't aware of it. We need to ask, how do we seek to clean ourselves up, to seek deeper connection with God, to try to show our devotion and commitment to God that blind us to the clear ways that he calls us to do that in his word? And then second, we need to remember that it can sound like that all and every kind of tradition is awful, it's terrible, bad thing. But that's really not true in the Bible. And in fact... In 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, he writes something astounding and uses the exact same kinds of language that we see in this passage. He, writing to the church in Thessalonica, he says to them, hold fast. It's the same word here that we saw Jesus use about the religious traditions. 
He says, hold fast to the traditions you were taught by us. Spoken by word or by letter. What's he talking about? He's talking about the apostolic traditions. By which they mean the apostolic message about Jesus. That they spoke and they wrote. Paul is calling us here, the traditions we need to pour ourselves into are in the scriptures, written down for us, that hold out to us this Jesus, crucified and risen. This Jesus, who alone can purify you, who can cleanse you from the inside out. These are the traditions that Jesus would call us to. Because those apostles were his apostles that he sent to speak on his behalf so that you and I could have this word. We could hear this message from Jesus. We could heed this warning and in doing so, discover the depths and the riches of his grace for us through his death and resurrection. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we, uh, we admit that this is, this is a hard-hitting passage, and I suspect that it hits many of us in different ways. And I pray, Father, that you would work through it, even as it uh, confronts us and challenges us and is a warning to us. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus' heart in it, his love for us in it. His desire for us to find our life and our refuge and our salvation in Him and in Your Word that speaks about Him. So Father, help us. Help us to wrestle with this passage and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.